and uh, open up your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. And starting in verse 12 of Romans 5. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Father, we ask this morning that your book would live for us, and we pray that you would open our eyes and give us light and understanding. We pray that you would guard us from error as we discuss weighty things, eternal things. We pray, King Jesus, that Satan would be muzzled and cast out. We pray that natural man would be subdued and spiritual man would rise within each of us and that we would see with a heavenly and eternal vision the words of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So just by way of brief review, last week I introduced the law of God as a concept that we have to wrestle with and that we have to understand properly from our Bibles. And we noted, first of all, that there are three categories of law in our Old Testaments. There is the ceremonial law, which had to do with worship and sacrifices and holy days and clean and unclean foods and clothing and practices. These things prefigured Christ pointed to his person and his ministries and his benefits. And they also marked the Jews out as a distinct people from all the other nations of the earth. This ceremonial law pointed forward to Christ. And so because Christ has come, the ceremonial law is no longer in effect. 
And so we see that, for instance, in Mark chapter 7 and verse 19, where Jesus insists that the wrong food will not defile a person, but what comes out of a person's heart is what defiles a person. And then it says in Mark 7, 19, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And it wasn't that the ceremonial law was a mistake. It wasn't, as I've heard some say, that, you know, these things were given for hygiene or something like that. No, no. All foods are clean. All foods always had been clean. It's just that God set these Jews apart, and he said, these things are going to mark your life, and so I'm going to declare these things off limits to you. But that has now passed away in Jesus. Secondly, there's the civil law of Israel as a nation, and it has to do with the laws that, that govern how the Jews practiced justice and ordered their common civil life as a nation. Those laws are no longer in effect because Israel, well, today Israel has been reconstituted, but Israel, as we understood Israel as the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, uh, was not their own nation for a long time. Uh, for instance, the Romans ruled during Jesus' time, and when the Jews came to Pilate and said, we, uh, we have a law, and by our law he should be put to death, and what they were saying is, but you won't let us because our law is not in effect. Now, we reformed, believe that something called the general equity of those laws, those civil laws, ought to inform how we make our laws for ourselves today. And lastly, then, there is the moral law of God. This is the law that reflects God's character and his righteousness and his holiness. And God tells us that we are to be holy precisely because he is holy. And this is found in a condensed and a brief form in the Ten Commandments. And it's found in an even briefer, more condensed form in what is called the greatest commandment. That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. And then the second greatest commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to tell you something. If you understand this threefold distinction, moral law, civil law, ceremonial law, you are smarter than a woman that I knew when I was a PCUSA minister who had a PhD from Princeton. And she did not get this distinction. And so she kept saying that we were arguing on the floor of Presbytery, in the Cincinnati Presbytery, and she kept saying, well, there's all these things in the Old Testament that we don't do anymore, and because we don't do these things, we ought not worry about the prohibitions against homosexuality either. And it was like, no, those are two different categories of things. Actually, three different categories of things. She didn't get that distinction. Princeton, PhD, didn't get that distinction. You've got that distinction, you're smarter than her. Congratulations. Now, this moral law that God gave us has three purposes, and we talked about this this morning in our catechism questions. The moral law, first of all, shows the sinner who is lost in trespasses and sins that he is in trouble, that he has a need, that he needs a Savior. Secondly, it gives us moral principles to guide our own lawmaking and civil conduct as a people as a civic people that we call America, the nation we call America, and other nations too. They should make their laws conformable to the moral law of God, right? Any government that, that licensed stealing uh, is violating the moral law of God. Any government that refused to enforce laws against stealing is violating the moral law against God, for instance. All laws ought to be just and fair, and the standard of what is just and fair is the moral law of God. And this is why we have traditionally placed uh, the Ten Commandments in our schools. 
and in our courtrooms in America, as well as in our houses of Congress. Lastly, this moral law shows the sinner who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ how to walk as a child of God increasingly bearing the family likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the moral law is of abiding significance both to the believer and the unbeliever alike. But here's the key. There's a different significance for the unbeliever than for the believer because it performs a different function. Now, to unpack that significance, we need to have a theological framework in place, and I want to suggest to you that this framework can be constructed around two phrases in 1 Corinthians 15.22, which was our call to worship this morning. And those two phrases are, in Adam and in Christ. In Adam, in Christ. And we can divide up and we can classify human beings in all kinds of ways. We can do it by, by race or by gender or by age or by native language or nation. All kinds of ways we can classify people. But the fundamental distinction that the Bible teaches us to make between people is in Adam or in Christ. This distinction obliterates all of the distinctions. Everybody fits into one of these two categories. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. Let's talk about that first phrase, in Adam. What happens to those who are in Adam? Well, Romans 5 tells us death. Not just bodily death, but eternal death. Both bodily and eternal death. Well, how does that work? Well, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 tells us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Now, what is sin? Well, sin is either a failure to do what God has commanded, or else it's doing something that God has commanded you not to do. And what did God tell Adam to do and not to do? Well, Adam was to work the garden. He was to keep it or watch over it or protect it. Uh, he was commanded not to eat of the fruit of one tree. Adam, as he was created and as he was placed in the garden, was in a probationary period. It was quite possible for Adam to obey the commandment of God. That's all he had, all he had to do was just do the things that God had designed him to do, and avoid that one tree. And if he had simply continued in obedience to the commandment that he was given, Adam would have fulfilled the terms of God's covenant or God's agreement with him. And Adam would have earned or merited eternal life. He would have kept the terms of the covenant which God had made with him perfectly, and he would have gotten the benefits promised by the covenant. But here's the kicker. Adam was in a unique position. The things that Adam did didn't just affect Adam. He was the father of all humanity, and whatever happened to him happened to us all. And the term for this is federal headship. Adam was the federal head of all humanity. 
Now that word federal, we, we, we don't really use that much in, in theology or in religion today. We're not used to that term, terminology. When we hear the word federal, we think of Washington, D.C., and that's just fine. That's a valid use of the word. A federal government is what we have in America, and part of what that means is that the government is empowered to make decisions or take actions that directly bind all Americans. And so, for instance... On December 8, 1941, in the wake of the debacle of Pearl Harbor, the U.S. Congress declared war on the Empire of Japan. After that declaration, every single American everywhere on the globe was at war with Japan because the government, our federal government, our federal head, made that declaration, and that affected us all. And every American, no matter where he or she was on the globe, had an explicit duty to aid the U.S. government against Japan in whatever capacity they might find themselves able to do so. In much the same way, Adam's violations of the commandments of God, which he could have kept, not only doomed him, but because of our relationship to Adam as our federal head, it doomed us Two. And as proof of that, says Paul in Romans ch uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, the proof of that is that sin spread from Adam through Adam to all of Adam's offspring. And as a result of sin, death reigns over all of Adam's offspring. And that last point is important. How do you know that sin has been transmitted to everyone? Because the wages of sin is death, and everyone dies. Even in that time between the commandment given to Adam and the revelation of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, Paul says, death reigned. There were no published commandments to be broken, but death reigned nonetheless. That's what Paul is saying in verses 13 and 14 of Romans chapter 5. And where there is death, by necessary implication, there is also sin. Now, the way that we express this in Reformed theology is in the language of covenant. We say that Adam and God had a covenant, which we call the covenant of works. And the terms of that covenant bound Adam and all of his offspring to perfect, perpetual obedience to all of the commandments of God upon the penalty of death and hell if we disobey them in the slightest. And so to be in Adam is to be under the covenant of works as it is explicitly laid out in the Ten Commandments and under penalty of death for breaking it. And we can't help but break it. So to simply be born is to inherit death and to be under obligation to keep the covenant of works perfectly from the moment you draw your first breath until the moment you draw your last one. You are obliged, you are born with an obligation to the covenant of works, to keep the commandments of God perfectly. And if you were to truly keep the covenants of works, you would have to fully obey the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Not only at the level of your words and your actions, but also even at the level of your thoughts 
and your feelings and your motives and your intentions. Now, I want to tell you a secret. There's actually two ways to get to heaven. And if you can do this first one, God will let you into heaven. If you can perfectly obey in thought, word, deed, motive, emotion, feeling, however you want to, all of it, if you can perfectly obey every nuanced understanding of the moral law of God, you will earn eternal life for yourself. God, Jesus said that to the young man, right? Uh, to, the, to the young man who came to him. Uh, he, you know, do this and you shall live, he said. If you fail in the slightest way, God will send you to hell. Now, when you are in this condition, under the covenant of works, you are also under the curse of the law, and that curse falls on all who do not perfectly keep the law. And so that law then becomes a cudgel. It becomes a big stick with which you are beaten. The law for the person who is lost becomes an object of torture, and it becomes very uncomfortable. I love Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, get you a copy of it. If you must, get it in the modern English version, but I like the old one. And in Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim, a Christian rather, is conversing with a friend of his named Faithful. And listen to Faithful describe the, uh, the, uh, the events that led up to his coming to Christ by way of allegory. And Faithful says, now when I had got above halfway up the hill, I looked behind me and saw one coming after me, swift as the wind. And so he overtook me just about the place where the settle stands. So soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow, for he knocked me and laid me out for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him, wherefore he served me so? And he said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backwards. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. So when I came to myself again, I cried him mercy. But he said, I do not know how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me, but that one came by and bid him to forbear. And Christian said, who was that that bid him to forbear? And Faithful said, I did not know him at first, but as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and in his side. And then I concluded that he was our Lord. So I went up the hill. And Christian said, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spareth none, neither knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. Human beings simply cannot live with a conscious knowledge of this truth. We cannot face ourselves very long. We cannot face what we are. We can't own up to why we do the things that we do. And so we pretend. We dwell in denial. We suppress the truth, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, which further provokes God to wrath. And it is in this context that the New Testament uses the phrase, under the law. This is what that means. 
In Pauline usage, the phrase under the law does not simply mean under obligation to obey the law. No. To Paul, being under the law means an obligation to obey the law plus an inability to keep the law plus no provisions for forgiveness for disobeying the law plus being liable to the curse that accompanies all law breaking. So in Paul's theology, to be under the law is to be in a place of utter hopelessness and despair, bound for destruction like a runaway train. And so when Paul says, you are not under the law, but under grace, as he does, for instance, in Romans 6.14, he's not saying that the Christian shouldn't keep the Ten Commandments. He's saying that the Christian is one who has been forgiven for law-breaking and is therefore free from the curse of the law. The Christian is no longer bound to keep the law perfectly upon penalty of death and hell. Now, how did God go about doing that? Well, the way he did it is a mirror image of the covenant of works. And that's where we get to the phrase, in Christ. In order to be free from the curse of the law, we must make a transition. We must go from being in Adam to being in Christ. We must transition from the covenant of works to a different covenant, the covenant of grace. How does the covenant of grace work? Well, you got to kind of piece it together. It's in the New Testament and kit form. But what we understand from a few specific scriptures, particularly Ephesians chapter 1 and John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit got together and had a conference before there was a world. And God looking forward said, and decreeing all the things that were going to happen, said, I'm going to save for myself a special people out of all of these people. And I'm going to pick them. I'm going to count them by name. And then I'm going to give them, Jesus, to you for safekeeping and for redemption. And Jesus said, I will willingly take responsibility for them. And I will save them by my life, death, and resurrection. I will save them to the uttermost. And God the Holy Spirit comes along and says, and when it's the right time, I will apply the work of Christ to each one and they'll be born again. And then I will keep them. I will keep them. And no one will be able to snatch them out of your hand. And so God made this covenant with himself. And based on that covenant, Jesus comes down. And he lives. And he dies. And he rises again. When Jesus came down and assumed human flesh, taking on the, a human form... He was born as a human being in Adam. He was born under the covenant of works. And so what he did, born of a woman, born under the law, this is how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3, Christ is born with an obligation to keep the covenant of works, just like any other human being. And since he was born as a Jew at a certain time in a certain place, he was also obligated to keep the ceremonial law and the civil law. And so he did that. He did it perfectly. He's the only one who ever did. Jesus offered 
perfect, perpetual obedience to God, and God accepted it. And God said, I am well pleased with you, Jesus. And Jesus merited, Jesus earned heaven. Well, you say to yourself, whoop-de-doo for him. How does that help me? Well, because Jesus is another Adam. He's another federal head. And so Jesus is able to transmit life to all that are under his federal headship in a mirror image of the way that Adam transmitted death to all who are under his federal headship. And so if we ask the question, with whom is the covenant of grace, I'm sorry, the covenant of works made, the answer is with Adam and all of his seed in him. And if we ask the question, with whom is the covenant of grace made, which is asked in the larger catechism question number 31, the answer is with Christ as the second Adam and in him all of the elect as his seed. In the covenant of grace, the merits, the credit that Jesus earned by perfectly keeping the covenant of works is credited, is imputed to us. And that's how we are justified. That's how we are declared righteous, even though we are unrighteous. This happens the moment we believe savingly on Jesus Christ and are born from above. Our past misdeeds, our past law-breaking, those are all credited to Jesus. And God looks across time, and he lays the guilt of those things on Jesus on the cross, and he pours out his wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And all of the hell that our sin deserves is poured on his head, and he suffered and he died for it on the cross. Remember the the Getty song, for on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Now remember that the wages of sin is death. Remember also that Jesus was without sin. And yet he died. He shouldn't have died. He didn't deserve to die. He died because our death penalty, as violators of the covenant of works, as lawbreakers, was laid on him as our substitute. In the words of the old hymn, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so what is the relationship between the law, the moral law, and the covenant of grace? Well, we're obligated to keep the moral law, but we're not required to keep it perfectly. Our imperfect obedience is graciously forgiven, and a failure to keep it may well incur God's fatherly displeasure and bring chastisement upon us as a discipline, but we don't face judgment and we don't face hell. But we desire to grow in our obedience because our greatest desire is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And the law then, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, gives shape to that love. We desire to be like Jesus, who is not only our Savior, but is also our best visible pattern for what an unfallen human being is to be like. And he kept the moral law perfectly. 
His keeping of the moral law was integral to our salvation. And so the cudgel that beat us black and blue when we were under the law becomes a staff for us to lean on and to assist us in our further pilgrimage in the covenant of grace. I want to close with a, a further quote from Pilgrim's Progress. I, I love this. There's so much in Pilgrim's Progress that just calls to my heart. And Pilgrim is traveling with another person named Prudence. And Prudence asks, what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion, that is to heaven? And Christian says, why there I hope to see him alive who did hang dead on the cross. And there I hope to be rid of all of those things that to this day are in me an annoyance to me. There, they say, there is no death. And there I shall dwell with such company as I like best. For to tell you the truth, I love him because I was by him eased of my burden. And I am weary of my inward sickness. And I would fain be where I shall die no more. And with the company that shall continually cry, holy, holy, holy. I am weary of my inward sickness. I've been rescued from the curse associated with it. I'm being rescued from the sickness itself, but it won't, that process won't be complete until I'm with him in glory. And I want more than anything else to slough all this nonsense off, all this sin. And I just want to be with him because I love him. Let me ask you, do you love Christ? Do you love him? If you actually just love Christ, you'd be amazed at what happens inside of you. And I'll tell you something else. Every time you're tempted to sin and you fail, the question is being asked of you, who do you love? Do you love Christ? Or do you love something or someone else most of all? And every time you resist that temptation, the answer is, I love Christ. And every time you fail, the answer is, well, when push comes to shove, I really love what I want more than I love Christ. To love Christ. Oh, there's no better thing. I, I got to tell you, I was uh, watching an episode of The Chosen. And I was kind of doing the backstory because I'd missed a bunch of them during Job 12, 12. And, and it came to the, the scene in, with the wedding in Cana where he did his first miracle of turning water into wine. And they did a wonderful job of setting this up. And, and in this retelling of it, Jesus had some kind of a kinship or a relationship, a distant family relationship with the bride and the groom which, or the groom, which probably actually was something close to the truth, scholars think. And they're running, they've run out of wine. And the parents are they're just hugely embarrassed. They're humiliated. Because they're not rich people. And Jesus' mother comes to him. Mary comes to him and says, they're out of wine. And he says, what's this got to do with me? My time has not yet come. And his mother looks at him. And I'm sure she had that mother look on her face, you know, where mom wants you to do something and you don't 
think it's the right thing to do or you don't want to do it. And then he, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says, and walks away, confident that he would do this. And Jesus, he turns. And out of the graciousness, he says, this is not my time. And I, what that means was it was not my time for a public miracle. So, so he went into the back room where the, where the jars were with the washing water. And he turned it into wine. And nobody knew where it came from except the servants who were there with him. So it was a secret miracle. And he just, he just turned and did something when he was asked to. And I looked at that and I thought, what kind of God is this? who knows the end from the beginning, who decrees whatever comes to pass, who creates by speaking, who sustains my every breath and my heartbeat. And when I ask him for something, he says, yeah, sure. What kind of God is that? That's a God that I love. And you should too. Amen.